Well, good morning, Harvest. Hey, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible under the, the seat or in front of you. Grab that or grab your phone or your tablet, whatever you've got, and go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Now, now we're continuing a series together through the book of Ephesians. And, and you might remember the, the first three chapters that we unpacked together were, were, were chapters where Paul was laying out for us the truth of God's grace. Now, the, the next three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, we're going to see what grace looks like lived out. So, so the first three chapters, the truth of God's love and grace, what, what's, what's true about God, what's true about you if, if you put your trust, your faith in Christ. And the, there's this amazing foundation laid in the first three chapters. And it's a foundation that's not based on you and me. It, it's fully based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, on the cross. And there's something so freeing about that, isn't there? To know that it doesn't rest on me and you. that we don't build this foundation of our life, that, that Christ has already finished it. It's, it's not resting. It's not depending on me or you. It's all on him. And this, this gospel, the, the good news of what Jesus has done, it changes everything. There, there's a, a vertical change that happened. Our relationship with us and God, the division taken care of, us now having relationship with him, adopted as his sons and daughters. And the, then the horizontal relationships all change as well. We're not brothers and sisters. And so as we, we roll into the second half of this book, you, you see right there in verse one of chapter four, Paul says this, I therefore, that, that therefore, it's like the, the hinge of this book. So the first half, the truth of the gospel. Now he says, therefore, because of everything that we've just heard about, all, all these things, you would call them indicatives, things that are true about you, because of all these indicatives, Paul's now gonna get into imperatives, commands. And then the rest of this book, we're going to see a ton of commands where the, where the gospel indicatives, the truth of who God is and who you are in Christ, they begin to press in on every area of our life. Now, now as we make the shift into the, the next three chapters, we, we can get into trouble because we can forget everything we learned in the first three chapters. In the first three chapters, there was only one, one command one imperative in, the, in all of the three chapters. It was in, in chapter two, verse 11, where Paul says, remember the command. Remember who you were before Christ and remember the truth of who you are now in Christ. Remember that, that God loved us when we were his enemies. God didn't love us when we were trying harder to do better. It started when we were his enemies. So the, the commands we now hit in the next three chapters, they're, they're not things we do to earn God's favor. You already have his favor in full if you're in Christ. So even these commands, they start from this place of resting, resting in the completed work of Christ, resting in the power of the Spirit through you. So every time we come up against one of these commands and we're, and we're wrestling with it to live it out because they're, they're not easy commands. Whether it's about relationships we have here, whether it's about, about marriage or parenting or work or heart attitudes, every time we come against one of those, we gotta come back to chapters one to three. And remember, this is the foundation it comes out of. And, and where I'm struggling with it, the question I ask is, where is there a gospel gap? Where am I not believing who God says he is or believing what he says about me as his son or daughter? 
Bear that in mind. Let's look at the first six verses in chapter four. If you've got your Bibles, follow along as I read. It says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, in all. We're going to see a couple of things from these verses here this morning. Two things. First is this, we are we are. We are called by God, but we're going to see how we're supposed to walk this out. But, but I want us to understand this. The, the very first point is this. We are called, and we're called before we're walking. We're going to be called to walk together, to, to do life differently. But, but Paul starts to unpack the implications of the gospel. He says, let's start here. Let's start at your calling. Now, he's, he's going to lay out for us where this calling leads us to, and it's interesting, with, of all the places he could start, Paul begins with, it's how we do this life together. The gospel's most clearly lived out in community, but first, first thing is this, we are called, and Paul starts off by saying, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. There's a very literal sense in which Paul is saying this. He's not using it as a euphemism, like, like, like my work feels like prison. That's not what Paul's talking about. He is literally, and I'm using that word correctly here because we don't often write, literally in prison, all right? But I don't want you to miss the implication of Paul's imprisonment because the next three chapters we're going to read through in the weeks to come, listen, there's not a single inch of area in our lives where Jesus does not lay claim to it, where he's not Lord of our life. He is our Savior and we celebrate that, but he's also our Lord. And in response to his rescue, we lay everything down at his feet so, so, so that we say, Jesus, my life is not mine anymore. I'm a prisoner of yours. It's all yours. I mean, the only response when you read through chapters one to three, the only response is that, that's proper is, is as we see his love and grace, as we say, you're worthy of all praise. I trust you with my whole life. But Paul's language is strong here. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, he says, I urge you, I, I urge, I, I come alongside you and I implore you and I'm, I'm cheering you on, but I'm urging you to this, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now that, that word he uses there, worthy, it's a, a word that, that could mean putting it on a scale. It's like how to, equaling it out. That your walk would be equal to the calling that you have. That, that when you put everything of the gospel on this side of the scale, all the things from chapters one to three that, that God's poured out for you, and then you look at what would my response be? What would be equal worth to the calling that I have in my life? I mean, in Paul's case, is, is being a prisoner for the Lord, is that, is that too much to ask of the Lord? Would that, no, it wouldn't, right? You start to think about all the things. So, you, I mean, you, I love reading through the book of Acts. You see the, as, the, as Paul and, and Barnabas and them going out with the gospel and the church is beginning to grow. And because of that, the authorities in that time are beginning to press in on the church. And they're like, you, you stop talking about Jesus or we'll beat you. I'm like, how? Oh, let me weigh that out. Well, suffering can't compare to the glory that waits for me in eternity, so that doesn't matter. I'm going to keep proclaiming Jesus. All right, well, we'll kill you. Well, 
for me to die is, is gain because I, I, I get to see Jesus. So that, that's all right. You can, you can come out. Right, then, then we're going to throw you in prison. Perfect. I've got some writing I need to do. Paul's like, I got some letters. Gives me some time, right? Give me a guitar. We'll lead a worship service. We'll, we'll get your guard saved. Like, like that's the kind of, how does the balance work? And it's about seeing the scales. You see the, the gospel over here, God's steadfast love, his grace poured out. You, you see God's wrath poured out on sin, but poured out on Jesus on the cross, absorbed by him. So you're no longer defined as a sinner. You're now called a saint. You have the robes of Christ's righteousness. You're redeemed and adopted. You're called the beloved that scale is so fully loaded. So, so no call of the mission is too much. And begin to ask, what does it look like to reflect that kind of love, that kind of grace? There's a lot of things we're called to to reflect the gospel. And in light of the gospel, it just makes sense. So, so right off, Paul says this, how do we walk? We walk with all humility. I mean, doesn't humility make sense when you, when you start to see the scale loaded on this side that, that I'm a sinner lost, I, I, I'm an enemy of God and God chooses then and there to redeem me, to save me? Wouldn't, wouldn't humility be a good response to put on this side of the scale? Do you think of this idea of worthy though? Here, here's what I want to make sure we understand what, what Scripture's not saying. We can think of all the things we're called to do. I need to love people. I need to forgive people. I need to walk in humility. I can understand why those would be there, but, but let's not mistake what Paul's saying here when he says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He's not saying, hey, try to balance out the scales. He's not saying, hey, hey, here's the way you earn. Here's the way you, you show you deserve the grace of Jesus. I mean, it's so easy for us to hear it that way, isn't it? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. How do I earn this back? How do I show that I deserve what Christ has poured out on me? If, if you've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, there's, there's this scene at the end of that movie, and spoiler alert, okay? It's a 25-year-old movie. I think I've passed the spoiler alert phase, maybe, right? Okay, another one, Titanic, the boat sinks. Just spoiled that one too, all right? <laughs> at the end of the movie, they, they find this guy, Ryan, and 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 and... And, and they, that spoils it right there, right? They're, they're going to find him, okay? Just so you know, as you start watching it. But th there's more. Tom Hanks, he plays Captain Miller. At the very end of the movie, they, they rescue this guy, Private Ryan. And, and, and Tom Hanks' character, Captain Miller, is dying. He, he, he gives his life for this to happen. And, and so he, he pulls in Ryan. And Matt Dillon's playing this character. He pulls him in close to him. And, and, and Ryan is just devastated that, that, that Captain Miller gave his life for him. And he's just broken by it and, and super upset. And so Captain Miller pulls him in quietly and into his, in, close to him. And you know what he says? He says this. He says, earn it. Earn it. Your life has been saved. Earn it. And, and when we read this verse, walk in a manner worthy of the calling, that's what we can sometimes hear. Like, like Jesus is saying, I saved you, now earn it. That's not what Jesus said from the cross, though. Jesus did not hang on a cross and say, earn it. He hung on a cross and said, it is finished. It's fully paid for. And so when we're called to live a life worthy of the gospel, we're not called to, hey, deserve the grace of God. We're being called to live this, listen, that we would reflect the beauty of God's grace. We could never, ever put enough on this side of the scales to outweigh what God's done. 
but I'm going to do all I can to live my life in a way that reflects the, the beauty of God's grace, the power of his spirit at work, of his grace poured out on us. So it's not earn the calling, it's remember that you've been called and now live like you've been called. I mean, think about all we've read in the first three chapters, all the things that, that God showed us in the first three chapters. In fact, if you get your Bibles, go, go, go back to chapter one. Look at verse four to six. Let, let's just be reminded again. Look at chapter one, starting at verse four. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We were called before we were even a thought. Look at verse one of chapter two. Chapter two, verse one says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. Here's the thing, we were called before we were even obedient. In fact, in fact we were called when we were disobedient. Look at verses four and five of chapter two. Verse four says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We were called before we could even respond. We, we were dead in sin and God brought us to life. Ephesians 2.10 says that, that we were called to live out the mission he's called us to, good works that Christ prepared for us before time. We were called to this mission that Jesus already had ready for us. And listen, here's the thing. As we talk about walking in a manner worthy of the calling, don't get the order out of whack. We're called before we walk. Our walking does not earn the calling. God did not look into the future and say, wow, this one's going to be bad. Man, the way they're going to walk is going to be so good. I'm calling that person. No, no. No, he loved you when you were his enemy. He called you to be his own. We're called before we walk. But here's our second point this morning. We are called to walk, and we're called to walk together. We're called to walk together. And, and we're gonna hear some commands, some imperatives, not things we do to earn God's love, but these things that we, we reflect his love as we walk. The, the idea of walking, it's, it's just your daily Christian life, the step by step as you live out the gospel. And the rest of this letter, Paul is going to, God through Paul, touching on every area of our lives our relationships with each other in church, our prayer life, our, our, our marriage, our parenting, how, how we serve, how we talk to each other. What, what do we do with our bitterness, with, with anger? What do we do about, about sexual ethics? What do we do in, in our workplace? All of this stuff is gonna deal with every area of our lives. I would say it this way, there's not one area of your life where God does not wanna press the good news of the gospel into. But look at where he starts. Verse two and three of chapter four says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. He says, when we reflect the gospel, we're gonna be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The first place we begin is in relationships. And so you start to think, how essential is it for us as a church to be unified? I mean, sometimes I, I think we, we sort of think that the unity in the church is a kind of a, a fringe benefit of the gospel. It's like the icing on the cake, but it's, it's not really the most important thing. There's other things we can lean into, but, but this is the first place Paul goes to. 
think about it though, wasn't it the one thing Jesus prayed for in the high priestly prayer in, in John 17, the, the night he was going to be betrayed the, before he goes to the cross and he's calling out to the Father and it says, I, I pray not for only these disciples here, but for, for those who are coming. So Jesus praying for us today, who we are today and what's he pray? What's his prayer about? I mean, all the things he could have prayed for. And he prayed this, Father, make them one as we are one. Jesus prayed that we'd be unified. Listen, sin does a whole lot of things, but one of the main things sin does is sin divides. It disrupts. It, it divides us from God. I mean, it divides our hearts, right? Where, where we, we become double-minded, we, we, we lose our identity, and we, we forget who we are. Sin also divides horizontally. It separates us from each other. And so the result of the gospel then would be unity, would be bringing us back together. Unity with God, unity with each other, bringing back the peace of God. So how do we do this, though? In, in a world that is so divided, how do we have gospel unity? Like, how do we actually walk together as a church? I mean, notice in verse 3, what does it say? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Maintain. It doesn't say, it doesn't say create this unity. It says maintain this unity. This unity is so essential for the gospel mission we've been called to that God says, I've got it. I've created. I'm taking care of this. I've established this by the cross. And we're called to what? We're called to maintain what God's started, what God's created. Again, we're called to reflect it. And look how we do it. Look, look, look at the ways we're called to walk. Look at how this plays out. How do we have unity here in our church? There, there's four words he uses, four ways to walk. Verse two, you see that with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And here's what's so great about that. It, these maintain the unity. Why? Because aren't these the very same things that created the unity? Isn't this what, what God did for us? It was, it was his humility, his gentleness, his patience, his forbearance that is the gospel that creates what this is this morning. And so, so we want to reflect that. And first, what's it say? Walk, walk in humility. Now, what's humility look like? It's a word we use. It's, it's, we'd say, well, the opposite of it would be pride. Pride would be you think only about you, right? Pride's all about yourself where, where humility takes the focus off of you and begins to have you look towards others. So, so in saying that, understand this, that, that pride, you can have a very low view of yourself and it's still pride. Yeah, but I don't think I'm awesome. I think I'm horrible. It's still pride. You're, you're still so concerned with yourself, the focus on you. In fact, C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, a humble person doesn't think less of themselves, they just think of themselves less. Did you get that? It's not that you think less of yourself. You just think about yourself less. It, it, humility doesn't mean that you don't have confidence. It means your confidence isn't in yourself. So how would this humility be played out in community? How, how would it look here in our church? Well, if you're proudful, a, a proudful person finds faults and failures in other people. A humble person so overwhelmed by the gospel and their own spiritual need and how they've been rescued. A, a humble person has spent enough time taking the logs of their own eyes. They're not as concerned about the specks in other people's eyes. A proud person keeps everybody at length. Like, no, I'm not getting invested. I'm not going to be involved. I'm not doing one of them life group things. Are you kidding me? I've done that before and it wasn't great. So used to stay out there where a humble person says, no, I, I actually want to pursue 
I want to pursue a closer relationship. I want to be in a deeper relationship. I want to go past the superficial to, to relationships that have, have transparency and vulnerability where, where I'm okay to say, here's all my stuff. I'm not going to hide anymore. I'm not going to fake it anymore. Here it is. And relationships have accountability that when, when you do say, here's my junk, it's not just here's my junk, but you have people in your life that are saying, we'll walk that out with you. It's what I love of my life group. I know that when I've expressed with, with those in my life group, hey, here's the stuff I'm wrestling with, I know, I know that that week I'm going to get a phone call or a text. Someone's going, hey, I mean, how are you doing on this? I've been praying for you. Anything else I could be praying for? Now, that, that kind of humility is scary. I mean, submitting your pride in that way, that's scary. Humility is risky. How else does it look? A, a, a proud person desires to, to be served. Hey, what does church have for me? What can you do for me where a humble person is motivated to serve others? Why? Because again, a proud person's thinking about themselves. You serve me. And I mean, think about Jesus. Jesus had all the power, all the authority, all the worthiness that he could have taken all the attention on himself. And yet it says in Philippians that he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. You're just crazy about that. You don't normally take on the form of a servant. You normally have that put on you. Hey, you, you're becoming this. Where Jesus said, no, 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 I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna take it. Humble people just willing to take themselves out of the center. So you think less about your rights, your needs, your wants. That's humility. Do we walk in that kind of humility with each other? It goes further. It says we're also called to walk in gentleness. And what's that mean? G gentleness, I, I think it's this idea of in, in Psalm 103 where it says that God doesn't deal with us according to our sin. He deals with, deals with us gently, not according to what we deserve. And so in response to that gospel gentleness, we do the same. When you think gentle, don't, don't think weak. It's not, it's not about being weak. We, we still need a, a proper righteous anger towards sin. All right, Jesus was not weak when he went to the cross, right? Jesus was not weak when he chose to forgive. Now you think of the example of the woman caught in adultery, right? And Jesus showed gentleness to that woman. It wasn't weak. Jesus standing up to a crowd of angry men. Not weakness in that, but it's gentleness. We walk in gentleness with each other. Why? Because we see that Jesus took our condemnation. And listen, we walk in gentleness with each other because we see that Jesus took the condemnation of our brothers and sisters as well. Listen, when we're not gentle with each other, here's what we're saying. We're saying, God, God, I know that you say you fully forgave that person. I know that you said it's finished, but it's not finished for me. I know you said that, that, that you were satisfied with the payment on the cross for, for that sin, but I'm not satisfied with it. When we're not gentle with each other, what, what we're saying is so serious. We're saying serious things about God and about the gospel. I love how Hebrews 5, it says that Jesus deals gently with the ignorant and the wayward. I love that, that, that he would put both in there, that, that Jesus deals gently with those who don't know better and he deals gently with those who do know better. So part of a life that reflects the gospel, it, it's a life that's humble, it's a life that's gentle. Thirdly, what's the word here? We walk with patience. An old school word, when I grew up memorizing stuff in King James Version, it was long-suffering. I like that word because it, it would say this, we have a long fuse for people. We got a fuse, but it's long right? 
It means we have endurance when things are hard, when, 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 when life is hard, when there's testing, when there's temptation. Patience doesn't lose its joy or its, or its peace or its contentment or its sweetness or its delight or its affection. So, so in our lives, this patience shows up with, with how we deal with hard circumstances. I've got patience. God's at work. In community, it's how we deal with hard people, right? Do you have patience? Really, it leads to the fourth one where it says that we bear with one another in love. When we're patient with somebody, we're placing all our hopes on the fact that God can change them. We bear with each other when we say they might not change. I'm patient with somebody who's dealing with pornography. I'm bearing with them when they call and say, pray for me right now, it's so hard, it's so difficult. You're showing patience to a husband who's striving to love and lead his family in a godly way. You're bearing with him when he stumbles in selfishness and laziness. You're patient with the person who's, who's wrestling to find their identity and their worth in the gospel in Jesus Christ, and you're bearing with them when they talk about these invasive negative thoughts. And we also, here's the thing, as we gather together as a church, we're, we're not going for uniformity, right? We're going for unity. Uniformity is we all think the same thing, we all dress the same, we all look the same, we all act the same, we all do everything the same. No, 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 we're not going for that. We're going for unity. So for that to happen, you're gonna need to bear with each other because, man, we bring a lot of idiosyncrasies to the table. Community is hard. Why? Because we're all very weird. We are. Now, instantly, when you say bear with one another, I, I think the, the automatic place we go is we instantly think of that person that we have to bear with, right? Right? Maybe in humility, realize that there are other people going, dang, I got to forbear that person, right? You might be the one, right? If you don't think, no, 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 nobody ever has to bear with me, we're so bearing with your pride, all right? That was a joke. Now listen, in bearing with each other, there are some things that we don't just let go of. I mean, Paul's gonna get there in verses four to six, some things that are like, no, this is what unites us. We don't, we don't wander off of these things. There are doctrines that, that, that we need to have because that is what's maintaining the unity. But, but listen, every misstep is not an opportunity all the time for correction. We, we don't need to all be a bunch of people with junior Holy Spirit badges on going, I'm gonna nail everybody who's gonna sin. I mean, can you imagine how important it was for people to bear with each other in love in this church context in Ephesians? We've got, we've got Jews and, and, and who are brand new Christians. We've got Gentiles who are brand new Christians. They're coming together as the church. Imagine the church picnic when the Gentile rolls in with his beautifully smoked baby back ribs for the picnic, right? Oh, sorry, you guys don't eat this, right? Think of the amount of, of bearing with each other they would have needed. So listen, in love, we, we confront sin, but we do it with humility, with patience, with gentleness. We, we do it with a, a view that God is at work in that person's life. And, and we do it with this view of, man, I, I wanna see them, how they're going to look when they reach glory and God's fully taken care of sanctification and it's moved to glorification. That's how I want to see people and all of us reflecting the gospel. That's how God created the unity. That's how he brought us together. That's how we maintain it. Now, here's the thing. This is not going to be easy. I mean, look what Paul says. He says, be eager. Verse three, be eager to maintain the unity. Uh, some translations say it this way, make every effort. 
I mean, it's putting energy into this. The assumption here in the text is that it's not going to be easy to be unified. And if you've been in church for longer than 10 minutes, you're like, yup, right? Do you know that none of the virtues, patience, gentleness, humility, forbearance, none of those were actually viewed as virtues in the Greek world that Paul was writing this to? Not one of them. They didn't see them as virtues. I don't know how much they're virtues today either. I mean, think about the, the division in our world right now. And then, and then in the midst of that division, be the person who stands in the middle of that and says, have we thought about humility and patience and gentleness? And this call here goes against the grain of our culture. It's not easy. There's going to be barriers. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be all kinds of hurdles for us to cross as a, as a church seeking out this kind of unity. But I love that it says the unity of the Spirit. It's His work, and we're just jumping in on it to join into it. And why do we do this? Why pursue this? Well, look what it says we're displaying to a watching world. Look at verse 4 to 6. Here's what we're showing. We're showing that there's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here are the things we don't bend on. These are truth claims that are very serious and, and, and we can be humble and gentle, but we're not bending on this. The whole reason we're doing this, the whole reason we want to be unified is to reflect that there is one God, one spirit, there's not a body for Gentiles and a body for Jews. There, there's one body called the church and one spirit that unites that church. There's one hope in the gospel and his name is Jesus, the one who lived a perfect life and died a death in our place, who rose victorious over sin and death. There's one hope that we have. There's one Lord we bow down to. I don't bow down to myself and Jesus. I don't bow down to little idols I've created. I don't bow down to my reputation or my thoughts. It's Christ I bow down to. There's one faith, it says here, only one way to salvation, and that's through Jesus. One faith, a faith that teaches that God loved his enemies to the point that he sent his son, a son that lived the perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose again from the grave. There's one baptism, it says. What's that mean? It means we're identified together through this one baptism that brings us all together, that we've identified with Christ's death and his resurrection, identified with Jesus. So here's my question as we wrap this up. How do we apply this to our lives? Here's a question I want to ask you. It's this, that, that, that maybe you would ask this question to yourself, that, that you would say, man, where does Jesus want to start with me? Where does Jesus want to start in this? I mean, we're going to be looking through Ephesians 4 to 6 and all the places that Jesus wants to press the gospel into our lives. And, and when you start to think about it, it becomes very overwhelming. And then you can look at this like I look at my garage, all right? Maybe you have a perfectly clean, organized garage. I do not. All right, and there are those times where I, where I look at it and I'm like, I don't even know where to start. And so guess what I do? I don't start. Just keep piling up on top, piling up. To the point now where as we leave the house, Libby's always like, make sure you close the garage. It's not because she's worried people are gonna steal stuff. It's she's worried people are gonna see what our garage looks like, right? Don't judge me. You do it too probably, all right? And if you don't, have patience with me. Bear with me, all right? But sometimes our, our life can feel like that garage, right? Or that other part of your life, that, that, that big project that we avoid. And we're like, man, I don't even know where to start in this. 
If the gospel wants to be pressed in on all of these areas, on my, my parenting, my anger, my, 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 how I serve in the church, the bitterness I might have, how, how I do life with my spouse or my kids and all these things, man, where do I even start? And oftentimes we say, oh, why bother? I'll just play the game. I'll just come to church. I'll smile real nice. When someone asks me how I am, I'll say, I'm fine. And we don't want to start because it feels so overwhelming. But let me tell you something so awesome this morning. Jesus is not overwhelmed by your mess. Not one bit. He, he's not looking at the garage of your life and saying, man, I don't know if I can do this. He's able, he's ready, he's not intimidated. So, so here's the question I ask again. As the worship team comes up, as we end off this morning, my question is this, where does Jesus want to start? Like maybe right now, right where you're at, you would, you would pray. Even right now, you'd be asking, Lord, Lord, where do you want to start in me? If you're here this morning, you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, I'll tell you where I know that God wants to start. He wants to start with you coming to a place where you confess your sin, your need for a savior, and you put your whole life and heart believing the good news of the cross, that Jesus died for your sin while you were his enemy, that, that he would forgive you, that he'd give you hope. So if you don't know Jesus, that's the start for you. To believe and understand there's, there's nothing you can do to save yourself, to earn this relationship with God, this forgiveness that Jesus offers, that Jesus has done it all, and you this morning would say, I just believe. Now, if you are a follower of Christ, where, where, where do you start? Maybe for you, you need to jump back into chapters one to three and say, man, I don't know if I fully understand. I don't know if I've fully embraced the truth of the gospel and that I, I live my life under that. And, and, and I just need to stop trying so hard to, to please Christ and rest in what he's done for me. Where does Jesus want to start? Maybe he's starting in how you reflect the character of Jesus. Maybe it's him saying, I want you to grow in humility. I want you to grow in gentleness, patience, bearing with those around you. Maybe you don't follow Jesus as your one Lord and there are sins right now and you know you're holding on to them and Jesus is saying, I want to start there. Just bring that to me, just drop that those thoughts you've got about yourself, maybe you need to let those go and, and come under the truth of who I say you are. Maybe, maybe those idols you hold on to for hope and say, just, just drop those. Where does Jesus want to start? Because again, he wants to start. He's not overwhelmed by your life. He's not scared of rolling up his sleeves and getting in there even this morning. He's, he's already poured out his full love and affection on the cross for you. So my question again is this, where does he want to start? Let me pray for us. Lord God, Heavenly Father, I thank you for the cross. I thank you that when we were in darkness, when we had no hope at all, that you came to us, running to us. You took our sin. And Jesus, you lovingly took up the cross for us to be redeemed. And so now here we are. We're gathered together as the redeemed, as the church. And so God, I pray, I pray with all my heart, God, that you would make us one 
that you'd give us the courage not just to proclaim the gospel, that we would live it out, that it would begin here in the house of the Lord, that we would be gathered together, unified together, walking out grace and forgiveness, sacrificial love and care for each other. So I pray you give us more of your spirit to live out the good news in our love for each other and the mission you've called us to as the church, to those in our community that so desperately need to hear it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.